The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. If you're experiencing life, and we know you are, you may have a variety of questions about relationships, family issues, personal goals, coping with the unexpected, and much more. Today, you will hear some answers from a psychological perspective, and you may just take away something that fits. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm your host, Suzanne Phillips, and this is Psych Up Live. Today we have a very special show. As this is the 15th anniversary of 9-11, we're reminded of the countless children who have faced life-threatening circumstances from war, terrorist attack, natural disasters, domestic violence, and refugee crisis. As parents, professionals, as caregivers, how do we help children who have faced trauma? The answer today comes from our guests, Sue Badu and Chelsea Badu. Sue Badu is a nationally known speaker, author, and consultant for traumatized children. She draws upon her background in child development, her professional experiences in child welfare, the juvenile justice system, and her personal experience raising, if you can believe this, 22 children, two natural, and 20 adopted. Many of those children having faced trauma. She is joined today by her daughter, Chelsea Badu, who is the artist and designer of their new book, Building Bridges of Hope, a coloring book for adults caring for children who have experienced trauma. Now, they're going to be discussing this book, and I will tell you, as someone who has worked and continues to work with trauma and responding to it, this is an amazing condensation and compilation of some of the best ideas in training for trauma-informed care. So we have it. It's a training manual, but it combines with that opportunities for creativity aimed at self-care of the caregiver. So it's providing that creativity and self-care while it's informing and guiding caregivers with strategies to foster recovery and hope in children. Sue Badu and Chelsea Badu, it is with great excitement that I welcome you to Psych Up Live. Thank you. Okay. Now, Sue, so so many people have asked me, I we can't talk about anything until I ask you, how does a mother of 22 children work outside the home, make a difference as a child advocate, and not get traumatized by the buildup of the laundry? <laughs> the buildup of the laundry, that's a great question. Well, um, I, I made a deal with my husband early in our marriage and told him flat out that I don't do laundry. So, I so see. That, that was a good starting point. Um, you know, really in our case, I know there's amazing single parents, including, um, you know, some that you'll be talking to soon, but, um, there, in our case, it really was a partnership that I, it was the two of us, my husband and I working together, and he really was uh, in charge of not only the laundry, but many other things that kept our family running smoothly. Uh, we felt that it was important to have a parent at home at all times with so many children, especially with all their special needs. And so he had that role. He stayed home with the children um, throughout the time, that the years that they were growing up. He uh, currently works outside the home and, and has at various times, but during the years the children were growing up, he was the at-home parent, and uh, that gave me the opportunity to be both um, mom uh, and come home in the evenings and, and spend time with the kids, but also to work outside the home. Also, the kind of work I've done um, has often been somewhat flexible in the sense that I've worked uh, with 
agencies and other organizations doing things like training related to trauma, but it wasn't always a nine-to-five type of schedule. Well, it certainly seems, and I think our listeners will hear, flexibility is certainly a big piece and connecting with other helpers to the to the answer as to how we help children by getting situations that help ourselves. Now, Chelsea, you were one of these 22 children. So I have to ask you, has that shaped your perspective about handling trauma? Does it bring a kind of wisdom to your own little children? Do you have little girls, is it, or little boys, Chelsea? I do. I have two daughters, an 11-year-old and a 5-year-old, and I think it's definitely helped um, me understand the different ways to interact with children and present different situations. Okay, so now let me ask both of you and and answer maybe Sue the 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 written piece and Chelsea the amazing illustrations. Why did you choose to do this training manual as a coloring book? Well, um, I. I Really, uh, do these trainings all around the country. I do physically, you know, go to places and do training sometimes at a conference, other times the whole day with the same audience or multiple kinds of uh, venues in between. And people would often ask, Oh, do you have, do you have this in a book form? Where's the book where we can take away, uh, the messages that you've been teaching about all day? We need to refer back to it. We want to look at it from time to time. We want reminders. So I had in the back of my mind that, that I really wanted to do that and create a book that would go along with the training. One of the strategies that I teach about in the training is using art and using uh, coloring and, and other forms of creative expression as a tool to help uh, in the healing process from trauma. So at one point, uh, Chelsea and I were talking about different projects we wanted to work on together because we do enjoy doing projects together. Sometimes we do trainings together as well. Um, we were talking and we said, you know, I've been teaching about coloring as a strategy long before it was trendy, but now it's kind of out there in the popular culture, so why don't we um, use that opportunity to put this information into a coloring book so that people will have access to the information but also a tool that they can actually use. Terrific. So, Chelsea, did you... Um, match your illustrations to the content because the strategies we're going to talk about some of them are just amazing or what inspired you as you as you created the the artistic work in the book we started going through um, an outline of what would be in the book including some pages that just had borders so that people could do their own artwork and my mom laid out all the text first and sort of just gave me the general theme or idea, the main idea of each page, and then I used that as inspiration for the artwork for each of the pages. Mm, they're just beautiful. Okay, so let's give our listeners a little bit of the um, background. Sue, could you define child trauma for our listeners so they then can understand the strategies we're going to talk about? Absolutely. And uh, one thing that's important to understand is that in our culture and in our um, country, we've really come to understand trauma over the last several decades uh, as it related to adults. We really learned about post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, uh, particularly around adults coming back from war situations and other things. And then it was, um, you know, September 11th, uh, 15 years ago, and other circumstances like that that finally led us to really have a greater understanding that child trauma is not the same. Trauma that happens to children does not affect them exactly in the same way it affects adults. Of course, there's some similarities. But child trauma really has to do with both the physical and emotional responses that a child would have um, to events that they perceive as being threatening to their life or their well-being. So even if an adult standing by might look on to a situation and not think it was that serious or life-threatening, if in the child's own psyche they're uh, interpreting it that way, then that can be traumatizing. Uh, but the other key important word there to understand is, is that it is the child's responses to the event, and that doesn't mean sort of voluntary responses, oh, here's how I think I'll respond, but it's really um, much more integral than that. It's within their uh, emotions and their brain uh, and their chemistry and everything, and so... 
the response of one child might be very different than the response of another child. One child may be um, deeply wounded and traumatized by witnessing, you know, a car accident or some other event mm-hmm. that an- another child who was also in the environment uh, may not experience in the same traumatic way. Uh, but there are some things, particularly child abuse, child neglect, living in a home where there's domestic violence, living through a natural disaster like a hurricane. Um, you know, there's some things like that that just almost across the board are going to create trauma for children. Right. Now, one one of the most powerful things that you say in the book is for the caregiver to understand it when they are dealing with youngsters who've been uh, faced trauma, and, and I agree with you, we talk about trauma as the rea- reaction or response, physical, psychological, to the event. But one powerful thing you say is not what's wrong with the child, to be asking ourselves not what's wrong with the child, but what has happened to this child? What is the backstory that they that they have had? And you have a very lovely section on trauma triggers and some strategies to to address trauma triggers, and I wondered if you could share a little bit about trauma triggers and, and your um, your strategy for dealing with it. Uh, absolutely. So um, a trauma trigger can be anything that often, very often, is sensory, um, but it can also be a physical sensory meaning using any of our senses. But it can also be a physical location, a date on the calendar, a type of event like a birthday party or something. Anything that um, creates in the child's uh, experience the opportunity to sort of relive the trauma that happened to them. Some people call trauma triggers trauma reminders, and I um, object and don't don't use that term in my work because when a child is, or an adult, when anyone is experiencing a trauma trigger, um, they're not being reminded of the trauma that happened. They're not remembering it. They're literally reliving it in all, mm. in every... Yes. Out of their being, you know, psychologically, spiritually, physically, mentally, everything, emotionally. So um, the first thing we have to understand to try to help uh, them cope with that, uh, as a caregiver, you want to be observant enough to notice what triggers the child may have, and that happens over time, slowly. But the other piece is we need to then give them sensory opportunities to counteract that reliving experience. So if a, if a trigger can be a scent or a smell, if it can be a color uh, or a sound or a particular piece of music or voice, if those kind of things can trigger uh, traumatic reactions, then we also can use our senses and build a little what I call a sensory uh, toolkit for children to help them cope with trauma triggers. So find out what scent helps them to be calm, and then find a way to put that scent in a little sachet or something that they can carry around with them. And when they're starting to feel anxious, they can breathe in that scent instead of the triggering scent. Mm. Uh, Same thing with a sound. You can find a certain piece of music or a nature sound or something that helps them feel calm and then find a way to make that accessible um, wherever they might be, something that's easy to listen to, whether it's on a cell phone or something else. And doing the same with all of our senses so that they have a way to really use their senses in a, in a whole new way that helps them um, restore the calm in their brain and in their spirit instead of going full out into the experience of reliving the trauma. Mm, they're, they're wonderful examples. And I also love the one you gave about, you know, we tell adults, um, deep breathing, you, you referenced Van der Kolk in terms of the body keeps score, how can we reset the body. So the idea of children blowing bubbles seemed brilliant to me. I mean, that's pe- people with bubbles all over that you can get. Right. You can even make them. And the whole idea of that being a resetting experience or a resetting strategy in addition to some of the others. And I really do think, you know, I've seen little ones just go back to a certain picture, go get the special thing from their room, and they become, you know, as you say, neurophysiological um opportunities that immediately remind them of a calmer self. So it's, um, it's, it's, it's wonderful, some of the examples. Now, one of the things that, in terms of the triggers that I wanted to ask you, Chelsea, and actually you also, Sue, is very often, especially this can happen in a classroom or a group of 
children, when one is triggered, it can become a domino effect. Um, because the the most frightening thing to children, just like to adults, is we need just one frightened person in a waiting room, and pretty soon we have a waiting room of frightened people. So how do we stop that cascade? Now, I wondered, Chelsea, if you actually had experienced that ever as one of the children, or were you a little bit older and was it different? So what would you say about that? Yeah, I think that... There are definitely situations where one person can get worked up and then everyone starts getting worked up. But I think um, growing up, my parents were really good at de-escalating the situation by, you know, removing the child that was having the trauma experience from the group so that they could have some one-on-one time, do the breathing technique, get them calm, and also not get the rest of um, the family riled up. While, while we were able to, you know, understand that this child was getting some extra attention that they needed at that moment. What, what I love about what you're saying is that when the parents or the caregivers seem to know how to handle it, and that's what this whole book's about, the other children do feel much safer because they know they're in safe hands. Nothing gets that out of control. I mean, notwithstanding life being not perfect. But that, that's that's a wonderful um, response and really motivates us to, to continue to um, use this kind of book for training. Um, when we're going to take a brief break, when we come back, Sue, the question that I wanted to raise was you described the three pillars of trauma-informed care as safety, connections, and emotional management advocacy. And I don't know that we talk enough about the advocacy and helping people to do that. And the safety and connections will be important to speak about also. You've been listening. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with child trauma experts Sue Badu and Chelsea Badu, their new book, Building Bridges of Hope, a coloring book for adults caring for children who have experienced trauma. Stay with us. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking about helping children who have faced trauma by helping and training the caregivers. Um, I mentioned before our break that the three pillars that uh, trauma-informed care advocate for our caregivers are creating safety, making connections, and emotional management advocacy. Sue, could you explain those a little bit to our listeners? Absolutely. So the most important piece as a foundation is that um, children have to feel safe before they can uh, even breathe and even begin to recover or heal. And that is uh, an important phrase I use there, feel safe. They have to feel safe, not just objectively be safe. So, for example, in the foster care world, often we remove children from a home that we've determined isn't safe. We place them in a new home that we've studied and we've done a licensing and checked background. So we, the adults in the picture say, okay, now they're safe. But the child doesn't necessarily feel safe. Suddenly they're mm. thrust in with strangers, they're in with strangers and they're, you know, they're in a different setting and they don't, the smells are different, everything. So they don't feel safe. So we have to pay attention to the things that help a child feel safe, not just 
be safe. Um, and then secondly, um, we have to make sure that they're able to have and maintain connections that are important to them. So connections with people that care for them, that love them, uh, that have been an important part of their past and their history. Even when there's been people that were involved with um, some of the difficult situations that they've been through, not completely cutting them off, but finding ways they can keep that connection, even if for a while it's um, through, um, you know, letters or, or phone calls before it can be reactivated in a different way. But we need lifelong connections, not just connections that are um, that are kind of sequential. You know, I'm connected to you this week and someone else mm-hmm. next week. Right. But um, con- connections that really last. But then the emotional management is both about um, helping the child, him or herself, learn to manage, recognize, and manage their own emotions, but also helping the other adults. So the advocacy piece really does relate to helping... Um, uh, adults understand these pillars that we just talked about and what they can do differently, whether it's at the school setting, whether it's in a, um, you know, doctor's office, whether it's in a uh, recreational setting like Little League team, or uh, if you are in the deeper end systems like foster care or juvenile justice in those systems, how can we help children and, and teens and youth uh, really have those three things at those needs of safety and connections and the ability to, to recognize and manage their emotions. Mm. One of the things that um, I I think you wrote about that I really want to add also, and I've seen people c- actually come to my office feeling desperately helpless about how their child is going to be safe in school or how their child is going to be safe on the playground when they know their child is easily triggered or how their child is going to literally go from one classroom to the other. And once they connect with other parents who also are advocating for some sort of special needs for their children um, or in some way gather information, and in the trauma work that I've done, I've found that when someone has education of and, ed- and information, their anxiety drops. So the more informed a parent becomes about possibilities to have a child shadowed by a helper, keeping siblings together, whatever it happens to be, they all of a sudden realize they don't have to do this journey alone because I think we pass it forward. If the parents feel they're not alone as they take care, advocate, and really help children with trauma, I think they pass down a sense of safety and efficacy, a sense of being able to do things that we want the children to incorporate. Oh, that's absolutely right. Having more knowledge and tools uh, the combination, and then connections with other people. I mean, those are the three things that I think are most valuable for the adults, and that's why um, that's why Chelsea and I really worked on this was that it gives people both um, knowledge. There's information in it, and it's a tool, and it also teaches about other tools you can have. Uh, and so then, what we've really been excited about is, as it relates to that third component of being connected with other people, we've found that whole groups, whole support groups of adults, parents, caregivers, um, parent, special needs parents, uh, foster parents, whole groups have been purchasing the book to use together as a group to reinforce their their mm. connection and their advocacy. So you're absolutely right. Those three things of information and tools and then connection with one another um, for advocacy really help adults to do a better job of helping the children. I think I could say that probably right across the country, school boards have learned do not push aside parents' groups of parents for special need children. They are the toughest (laughs) and the (laughs) most determined people, and you do not want to ignore them. So I think what you're saying is so true. Now, one thing I read that immediately made me think about the many 9-11 children that I've worked with with their families is what you describe as the traumatized child's sensitivity to other people's feelings. They are very, very vigilant. And I remember early on, and actually sometimes it still carries on, even as we're trying over the years to help these children and the parents, there's a great sensitivity to reading the facial expressions, the body language of the parents. So it would be, are you okay, mommy? How come you're laying down? Are you all right? What's wrong? 
And the sense or reading depression, anxiety, worry in the parents' faces, which you can, these children, you're not going to hide it from, would often trigger them. And as you say so well, they often end up looking like acting out children. They're really in the survival fight-flight mode. They'll break toys. They'll wreck a birthday party. And so I wondered if we could talk a little bit about how do we help children? What are some of the strategies you both have offered in the book for helping children manage emotions? I think that's a great question. And I'd love to um, have Chelsea respond first because I know she can't be with us too much longer on the call. Yes. And then I'd be happy to jump in. But Chelsea, definitely talk about the artwork that you've even done with your own children. Yeah, I've found that, you know, introducing art at an early age gives children a tool to deal with um trauma situations, but also just the regular stressors of life. And I do regular art nights with my children um, where a lot of it is just abstract and just getting the paint on the paper and using that as a relaxation technique. And more and more the research has shown that coloring, especially um, when kids and children do it together, is a bonding experience and it's able to relieve a lot of stress. You know, one thing, Chelsea, that you mentioned, I love this exercise because I started thinking about it, like color therapy. You mentioned color therapy, and I think you have one one page. It's beautiful, but you suggest, well, first color it maybe blue or, or green. And then color, do the whole page different, do the whole page in red. And you were making the point that different colors help different people in different ways. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I, I, my mom talks a lot about the the blues and the greens um, and the yellows are have more research behind them that they are traditionally soothing colors. But I think you know for some people it's it could be red uh-huh. colors where they're more comfortable. So one thing that we could take away from what you're saying is you have, and this is another point you make in this lovely um, book, which is. This is not a one-shot deal. If if children have suffered, they carry the scars, but they can heal. But you say you do a coloring or an art project on a regular basis with your children. And I think that it's the continual use and presentation and return to some of these strategies that really makes them belong to the children. Do you find that that is true? Yes, I definitely agree, and I think that um, you're not comfortable at using something as a stress reliever if you feel stressed about it or you don't feel like you're good at it, so introducing it and doing it on a regular basis sort of gives that comfort level that, you know, you might not be the best artist in the world, but you can do it. You can create something at the end of the art session. Yeah, I think that you, you ask a child to draw a bird, and they'll draw the feathers, the beak, they'll draw everything, and you ask most adults to draw a bird, and they'll draw a V, because at some point they were told, you're not an artist, or you can't do it, but you're right. I think the That's regular true. integration is, you know, it works. I love it. That's true. You were going to say something, Sue? No, she's absolutely right, and that applies not only to the art kinds of projects, but to the other types of activities suggested uh, that we suggest as tools. For example, we talk about use of dance and full body movement, dance, yoga, other types of activities that really engage your full body. Um, so um, it can be even, you know, going for a walk, but uh, whatever it might be. And that's another reason we kind of connect that sometimes with the art and do a big art project, like a mural painting on a wall or a mural or something. And so, uh, but again, it's something to do repeatedly over time. Even the bubble blowing that you mentioned earlier, um, you know, I, I tell families, keep Keep little bottles of bubble wood everywhere around so that you can pull it out. <laughs> yeah, when, you know, out of your pocket, out of your backpack, whenever you need it, um, because it is the the repetition of a lot of these strategies that really helps reset not just reset the brain in the moment, but re restore and sort of recreate the new connections in the brain that will sort of override the connections that were. Um, harmed or damaged during the trauma experiences. 
Right. Beautifully said. I mean, I really think it's so true. And since we know about trauma, that often trauma is such that we don't have the words, so that if it can be expressed in the dance or the puppets or, you know, the artwork, it's such a wonderful expression that allows the story to start to be told. Um, I wanted to ask in terms of your own children, Chelsea, what is their favorite art um, project? I think the, the favorite project is just painting. We enjoy painting a lot. We do, um, sometimes I'll lead an activity and give them a theme like mountains or something like that. But a lot of times I just pick out the colors and let them go at it. Nice. I mean, I even think that that's a part of what what's great about these coloring books is people, and you have pages that are just open-ended, that people can put whatever they want. Sometimes people are surprised at what emerges if they really just let themselves go with it. Um, one of the things that I think was very powerful, and I, I think a lot about um, narrating healing and telling the story and what is the backstory, I wondered... Um, if you could give us a quick version of the trauma suitcase story so people could really grasp what it first meant as a trigger and then how you, it sort of changed, Sue. Absolutely. Well, I, I often use this story when I'm training so that adults can uh, have a situation that they could possibly relate to or understand what a child's going through when they experience a trigger. But I had uh, I have a pink little... A suitcase that I bring with me when I travel, and it's a carry-on size, but sometimes you do have to check it. And I travel a lot for my work, so this happens from time to time. Uh, but I prefer not to check it because I always, you know, don't want my luggage to get lost or, or even delayed. Um, but occasionally that'll happen, and over time, you know, when I would land somewhere and if my luggage would be delayed, that would be um, stressful, but it wouldn't necessarily be traumatic. To, uh, you know, those are two different things. They're on the same continuum, but they're different. And uh, then one time um, I was working at a, doing speaking at a conference in Kentucky, and I had a phone call from home that I had to urgently get change my plans to get home as soon as possible uh, because one of my children with very severe special needs was not was medically not doing very well at all, and they didn't even know if he would live through the day. I did make it home. He lived through that day, but he died very soon thereafter. But on that trip when I came home, my luggage actually got lost. Uh, in the moment, uh, at that time, I didn't care about that at all because my focus was on being with my family and being with my child. Uh, and somehow the airline did find my luggage and return it to me. Uh, and it, that's kind of a blur. I don't really remember it happening, but it obviously happened. And down the road later on as I resumed going back to work after, you know, some time for, for healing and grieving, um, I started traveling again and using the suitcase again. And, you know, everything was fine until the day came that um, it got lost. And that day... Uh, it took me totally by surprise, my reaction, because I was standing there in the airport, and instead of just being a little annoyed or a little stressed, as I normally should have been in a situation like that, I had a complete meltdown. I started mm. sobbing. I started crying. I started even stomping my feet and yelling at people around me. And I'm sure that anyone that was nearby thought I was this crazy woman, and they might have wanted to call security, <laughs> and they might have been afraid of me. What was I going to do? Yeah. Um mm. And really what I realized later, you know, was that it was a trigger for me because the last time my luggage had been lost, um, my son had passed away shortly after. And so my brain had sort of connected those two events. And when I went into that trigger mode, I was literally reliving that, but without awareness in the moment until I learned about it later. So then now I still travel and I still lose my luggage from time to time, but I have to prepare myself and I, I do some of my breathing exercises and I do sort of you know, think of things that are going to help me stay calm even if my luggage gets lost so that I still might get stressed. I still might get, you know, not be mm -hmm. totally pleasant about it. But, and Chelsea can attest, she's been with me when that's happened. But um, but I don't have those meltdowns anymore because I've learned coping skills to, to de-escalate the, the trauma trigger. And so okay, when people I, under, understand I, that, they also then can get a better understanding of what a child is going through when they look like they're acting crazy, when they look like they're acting uh, out of control, when you feel like so, you need to call security, uh, and instead you, um, you know, you can recognize there's a backstory here. 
Okay, maybe we'll pick that up again on the other side of this break. Uh, I apologize for for breaking in. We are going to take a brief break. Now, I know, Chelsea, you are headed back to work and your children. Let me, at this break, thank you for your beautiful artwork and layout in this coloring book for all that you've offered as part of Building Bridges of Hope. Thanks, Chelsea Badu, for being one of our guests. Thank you. Okay. Um, We'll be right back. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're talking about helping children with trauma by helping the adults who care for them. Stay with us. Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit voiceamerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24-7. Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. This is Suzanne Phillips, and we've been speaking with Sue Badu and Chelsea Badu. Chelsea had to leave. Thanks again, Chelsea. Sue, one of the things that we read so much about now is the importance of stories in children's lives, in narrating healing, Now, you narrated your own story, you and your husband. Your other book is called Are We There Yet? Um, It's a book about raising 22 children. I wanted to ask you if you actually found that to be a therapeutic experience, if you learned something in the writing of it, what made you even write the book? It was absolutely a therapeutic experience, um, and in you know, we sort of anticipated some of that going in uh, just from our overall life experience. We knew that that might happen, but it, it was almost overwhelming how much it really um, created that opportunity to recognize areas that we still needed some healing in our own lives or areas that um, was a, a privilege to sort of revisit in the process of writing about it. Um, story sharing is so powerful. Uh, we always thought it was something we wanted to do was write our story. We thought even if no one else read it but our own kids and grandkids, we wanted mm. to have that story, that history, that heritage uh, for a legacy for them. Um, but we also, we sort of had three purposes beyond our own family in mind of writing it. We wanted people to not feel alone. I think you mentioned that in one of your other comments earlier, but we knew that people who are raising children who've been through trauma, whether they brought those children into their family for adoption or foster care as we did, or whether they, um, you know, have a child born to them that went through some trauma like surviving after 9-11 or a school shooting or a hurricane or something else. Um, we wanted people to know that they're not alone in what they're going through, and we found that too many of the things that were out there were just um, really too fluffy, like, uh, you know, sort of, oh, yeah, there was a problem, but then love makes it all better, um, or <laughs> too horrific, just kind of focusing on the, the trauma and the pain and not the hope. And so we really wanted to give people encouragement that they're not alone, um, that, yes, there's the really hard times, those raw moments, but there's also... There is hope and there is healing. We also wanted to educate others who don't necessarily have these children in their home but are interacting with them every day, whether they are the teachers at the school or the clerk in the grocery store or the Sunday school teacher at church or whoever else it might be that, you know, to give them a little inside glimpse of what um, what families caring for children with special needs or, or children who've been through trauma, what their really day-to-day life is like and how other people in the community can be better equipped and better prepared to sort of come alongside and support uh, and advocate for families. 
Um, and we also were hoping that maybe it would encourage others to um, say, you know what, I can do that. Maybe I'm not going to do 22. No, we don't think everyone, should, you know, is, uh, that's their life path. But even one, you know, maybe it would encourage one person to say, you know what, I might become an adoptive parent to one child who's experienced trauma or something like that. And so um, those were kind of the things in our mind when we decided to write it. Uh, but it definitely was um, therapeutic for us. So my husband and I spent many nights um, sort of just crying or laughing uh, as we relived and reshared those stories that we ended up writing about. Mm, I, I think it's a wonderful example that the narrating of your story is not only a gift to yourself, but it it really often moves people away from their own sense of helplessness when they realize they can pass it on as a lesson learned to someone else. Um, and that's very much what you did because it's, I think you start your book by saying the most important thing in helping a child is having a caring adult who wants to be there for them. And with the, the kind of help you've been giving in throughout the country and the advocacy as well as the book, it's, it's pretty amazing. Now, the name of the book is Building Bridges of Hope. And you do mention three steps. You talk about if a bridge collapses, what are we going to do? The optimistic person's going to jump in the water. But but you actually talk about three steps. I wondered if you could quickly mention those. Absolutely, yeah. I, and I do give an example there. If you needed to cross a body of water and you expected a bridge to be there that is usually there, um, and you've crossed it before, but all of a sudden it's not there. It's been washed away by a storm or something. How else can you get across? And you can be creative and think of many ideas from swimming to taking a helicopter to tunneling under and so on. Um, but what all of the examples take are the three things that you were just talking about. One is they all take more time than it would have taken to just go across the bridge as you expect it to do. Mm-hmm. Even, a, even a quick option like a helicopter, first you have to find it and you have to buy the ticket. And, you know, by the time you've made all those arrangements, it took longer than going across the bridge. So all of the options take more time. All of them take different expertise than what you needed for the bridge crossing. So even even if you're doing something like swim um, or walk around or something, uh, that's different expertise than driving across a bridge. Certainly building a new bridge or digging a tunnel, that's way different expertise. Um, right. They all take different expertise. And then the third thing is they all take different um, resources than what you need. All you needed was a little gas in your car and you could drive across the bridge, maybe $2 for the toll. Um, but if you're, um, you're going to do one of these other um, alternatives, then you need different resources. That might be a resource of strength, it might be money, it might be equipment, it might be technology, but in any case, it's a different resource. So that, to me, is what I call the the formula, the magic formula for helping children is um, it's going to take more time to help them reach certain life milestones than it would take a child who hasn't experienced childhood. So just to be patient and to be in it for the long the long picture, the long haul, it's going to take different expertise. So you do have to learn. You do have to have the information, like we've talked about earlier in the call, about how to help and what, you know, what the brain response is and the body response and so on. And then it's going to take different resources. It's going to take uh, perhaps therapy, perhaps a special approach to education, perhaps, um, you know, some different techniques or tools that you have in your home that are resources. Uh, so those are the three things. You add those together and then you add in hope because you wouldn't even try any of those things if you didn't actually have hope that something was going to make a difference. Uh, and that's, that's your magic formula. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a great formula. It's a great formula. And it fits in with what, you know, people have different kind of definitions of post-traumatic growth. But I've heard so many people over these years say, if you had told me, that I was going to raise four boys alone and deal with their special needs and then deal with a hurricane and then deal with a job loss, I would have said it's impossible. But what you're saying, Sue, is that if you really trust that the persistence, the expertise, the resources, and the patience, I think patience is key to this, too. Um, yes. You know, they if they're if they're sort of underlined by hope, you've got a pretty good shot. And then people are just even they're amazed at where they've arrived or where their children have arrived. Absolutely. Now, um, just so that people know 
how to get to you, how to get the book, how to get either of your books, um, how would they get building of building bridges of hope? How would they get? Are we almost there yet? And how would they find you and Chelsea? Uh, well, um, we'd love them to come visit the website. It is my name, uh, Sue S U E Bado B A D E A U, all written as one word. Um, dot com. So that's my website. Very uh, easy to find. I'm also um, you can find me that same way on Facebook or Twitter as well. Uh, and then on my website, there's information about ordering either of the books um, and some other, um, some free handout type resources we have on there as well. And, um, of course, in this day and age, any book um, you can usually always get through uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble online. Our books are there, too. But we really uh, do uh, appreciate people who come to our website. We can then have communication. We can sign you a personalized copy, um, anything like that. But um, and and we can you can see some of the other things that I uh, that I speak and train about as well. But um, there are some bookstores around uh, and communities that also carry them, and we love supporting um, independent bookstores. We used to own one ourselves, and we're, we're real fans of bookstores. So you can always ask your bookstore to order it, and uh, that would that would be great as well. <laughs> I, I want to add for the building of br- bridges of hope. The amount of resources in the back of this book, and they're referenced throughout the book. Sue doesn't just make a strategy without giving a reference to a theory, a program, um, a trauma-focused uh, research, so that. You you have not just the training manual, but you have a, a, a wonderful listing of resources that I really think would make any caregiver feel like, whoa, this is really, really going to help me. Now, there's one thing that I didn't want us to overlook, so I want to ask about it because timeout is such a common um, uh, technique that parents use when a child is creating a problem or is upset or is, is fighting or, or whatever. You make the point that when we're working with these little ones or these teens who have faced trauma, the technique should not be time out but time in. And I wondered if you could just share your thought on that, Sue. Definitely. Uh, so time out was, you know, often the first alternative uh, for people who grew up in a situation where spanking was maybe the discipline of choice, and it was like, okay, well, this isn't spanking. This is this is kinder. This is gentler. Um, and and so it, it was uh, a good alternative. And for children who've never uh, experienced trauma, uh, I'm sure it does. You know, it's it's a fine alternative. But for a child who has experienced trauma, being sent away, that whole issue of timeout, go to a corner, go to your room, go to the chair, whatever, wherever the timeout spot might be. Uh, literally can serve itself as a trauma trigger or it can reinforce and underscore the wounds from the trauma in that I'm being sent away, I'm not wanted, I'm being rejected, I'm all by myself, I'm alone, nobody understands, nobody cares. Um, And that, instead of helping to improve the behavior that you're trying to change, uh, not only will not improve the behavior, it will likely cause it to escalate, um, but it deepens the wound so it makes it harder the next time to do something that will cause healing. So, uh, on the other hand, you can, you know, while you're working on healing, you certainly just can't give carp loss and, and have behaviors that are, um, that are harmful to the child or to others or just, you know, out of control. So you do need to do something in those moments. And so what we talk about is something um, time in, which is, okay, you, you get this consequence now. You broke your sister's toy or you, you know, whatever else you did. Um, you don't get to have the next, whether it's five minutes or 20 minutes or hour, depending on the age of the child developmentally and the nature of the situation, but let's just take a little child, you'd say maybe five minutes, ten minutes. If that would have been your time out, instead you say time in, you're going to, you can't play during that time, you can't use your toys, you can't use your electronic devices, whatever else. You have to be right with me, right right at my, attached to the hip, right with me. If I'm doing a chore, you're doing it with me. If I'm sitting <laughs> reading my favorite, if I'm sitting reading my favorite book, you've just got to sit next to me while I read. If I'm, you know, it's whatever great. I'm doing, you're just right next to me. So, your consequence is you lose the opportunity to spend the time the way you would want to spend it, but at the same time, you're not being pushed away and rejected. You're, you're being still um, kept close in that connected relationship. 
And we know that that close connection re-regulates infants, teens, children. So it's just, I love it. So a very quick, we're almost out of time, a quick take-home message, Sue, to all our listeners. I think that the take-home message is sort of twofold. One is that there is always hope, and you've said that already. Um, That would be my biggest take-home. And to uh, move towards that, the other is you have to take care of yourself as the caregiver. So part of uh, what we try to do here is not only give you tools you can use with your child, but for yourself. How do you use, um, you know, the things that help you reset your own um, your own emotional regulation and just take care of yourself. It's not a luxury. It's not um, selfish to do some self-care. And so there's always hope, and it's really important to take care of yourself while you're caring for others. Those would be my two biggest take-home messages. Great. I want to thank you, Sue, and I want to thank Chelsea for bringing your wisdom and the bridges of hope for everyone listening and the children they care for. Um, I want to thank my listeners. You can hear this show and any prior show as a podcast on my host site. Listen to it. Pass it on. It's also a podcast app on your iPhones. It's on iTunes under Psych Up Live. Next week, Bruce Van Horn is returning to Psych Up Live to offer a mini version of his workshop on Restoring Your Life. Restoring, which is much like the narrating of healing we were talking about here. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Until next week, please take care, thanks, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk more next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.